It's good to see you this morning. Um, I want to start off, I want to tell you a story. There was a, um, there was a great man in, in church history uh, who was actually uh, a direct disciple of John, uh, the beloved, Jesus' closest friend and one of the 12 disciples, uh, one of the 12 original apostles. Uh, there was a man in the second century who was a direct disciple of John. His name was Polycarp. Um, and I have argued uh, long and hard with my wife to let her allow me to name one of our kids some derivative of Polycarp. <laughs> but <laughs> to no avail. But this is a church that likes weird names for their kids. So um, if you're looking, I uh, highly suggest Polycarp. Um, but what, what, uh, what I want to read you is a little bit of what's been recorded about him in church history in the story of the early church fathers or in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's a portrait of a life lived worthy of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in, in Philippi, the book of Philippians you've got in your Bible. And he encouraged them in the face of great struggle and great persecution that because of what God had done for them in Christ and who they were, that they were now called by God to live a life worthy of that great sacrifice and of that great service. And this is what's been recorded of Polycarp in history. This is from Fox's book of Christian Martyrs. It said, hearing his captors had arrived that evening, Polycarp left his bed to welcome them. He prepared a meal for them, and then he asked for an hour alone to pray. The soldiers were so impressed by Polycarp's advanced age and his composure that they began to wonder why they had been sent to take him. But as soon as he had finished his prayers, they put him on a donkey and they brought him to the city. They brought him before the tribunal and the crowd, and in that space, Polycarp refused to deny Christ. Although the proconsul begged him to consider yourself and have pity on your great age. Reproach Christ and I will release you, the proconsul said. But Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Threatened with wild beasts and fire, Polycarp stood his ground. What are you waiting for, he said. Do whatever you please. The crowd began to demand his death. They gathered wood for the fire, and they prepared to tie him to a stake. Leave me alone, he said. He who will give me strength to sustain the fire will help me not to flinch from this pile. So they bound him, but they didn't have to nail him to the stake. As soon as Polycarp finished his prayer, the fire was lit and it leapt up all around him, leaving him unburned. It surrounded him, but it did not consume him. Until the people convinced the soldier to plunge a sword into him, Polycarp did not give up his life. When he did, so much blood gushed out that the fire was extinguished. The soldiers then placed his body into a fire and burned it to ashes, with some Christians later gathering the ashes to give them a proper burial. That is an example of a life lived worthy of the gospel. And as I thought about that this week, and I thought about what we're talking about and what we've been talking about in this series, and what it means to be the church and, and how scripture defines who we are because of what God has done for us. I began to think, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel in this day and in this age? Is it really that much different? I mean, the reality of it is none of you will probably ever have to face the threat of being torn apart by wild animals. None of you will probably ever have to face the threat of being dipped in tar and impaled on a stake and lit on fire to be the personal torch for a party of a king or of a ruler of another nation. Some of you may very well, by God's grace, give yourselves to go and serve in other places where you might face that type of threat, but the majority of you in here live in a, a country and in a culture that values freedom, and that values religious freedom in particular, that gives you the right to come and to worship the God of your choice and to serve the God of your desire the way that you so feel that he has called you to. So you don't face the fear and the threat that a guy like Polycarp faced. But as I began to think about what a life lived worthy of that gospel looked like as a people in this day and in this time, I began to think that though we don't face those kinds of imminent threats to our life, we do face dangers from the inside 
that may be just as greater, just as damning, and render us just as impotent as death by fire. Though we don't face lions, we do face pride. We do face the self-centered, self-interested, self-focused desire to pursue our own interests to our own glory, thus rendering our life and our lives collected as the church useless, powerless, with no effect in one another's lives and in the culture and in the, the city around us. So what we are doing this week and the following weeks and what we have been doing in the weeks previous is we have been talking about what does it look like to actually live a life worthy of the gospel as a people called the church? What is the church? Who is the church? How does scripture define the church? What are we to be? What are we to do? And what is the motivation for those things that brings us together and that calls us to live this life? We're not the only church. We've said that almost every week. I think we've done that. We're not the only church. We're not the best church. We're obviously not a perfect church, but by God's grace, we are striving to be a a faithful church, a church faithful to the description of the calling of God in the scriptures, a church by God's grace that's trying to be faithful, to live a life worthy of the gospel that purchased us out of our sin and out of our pride and has called us together. A church trying by God's grace to be faithful to do the very thing that God brought us together to do and that was to live lives in such a way that we reflected a wisdom and a character and a glory that comes from only God himself. That has always been and will always be God's purpose for his church that his people who he has rescued from themselves have been brought together for no other reason but to reflect his wisdom and his glory and his greatness in the places that he allotted for them to live out the life that he's given them. We have been given breath by God to reflect his greatness to a world that is lost and separated without him. That is the purpose of the church. That is the calling of the church. That is what God has said we are here to do. And what we're trying to do is understand what that looks like right now when we don't face the imminent threat of lions. When we don't face the imminent threat of death on a stake. See, one of the things I love, I think, about the early church and the church fathers, and I think I can say it because I live in the 21st century and I don't live in the first century or the second century, was that they had an unbelievably keen sense of awareness about the urgency of eternity. I mean, they really did not know what the next day held for them. There were no fantastic medical breakthroughs to extend life uh, beyond its, its natural limits. There were no vaccines. There were no medicines. There were no life support systems. They, they did not know what was coming next. And because of that, when they understood who they were because of the gospel, that their life was no longer their own, that they had been purchased with a price, and that they were brought together by God to represent that to a watching world, to plead, as we talked about last week, as ambassadors, that people be reconciled to God, they could lay that life out knowing that he who gave himself for them had the power to raise that life up. So what was, what was worth Changing, exchanging that for here and now. An unbelievable sense of the urgency of eternity where today I think we have, we have succumbed as a, as a church culture, as a, as a people in this time and in this nation in particular to a sleepiness of, of soul, um, an obesity of pride in our spirits and in our hearts that has left us lazy, has left us self-centered, self-interested, and self-focused. So we're taking the time to say, what is God calling us to be? What is he calling us to do? How is that supposed to play itself out? And the beauty of it is he hasn't given us this this list of things that we just have to check off to to understand and, and, and know that we're doing what we're supposed to do. I love the fact that Scripture oftentimes, when he's talking about these types of characteristics and qualities and identities of his people, he gives us these unbelievable pictures that help us to understand in a deeper and more tangible reality what it means to, to be who he's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. And so we've, we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about how the church, the, the people who are to reflect the glory and the character of Christ to the world, God has given us this, these, these pictures in Scripture of what that looks like so that we can wrestle with it, so that we can deal with ourselves with it. And we talked a few weeks ago when Chris was preaching about the gospel making us a family. And there is an aspect to being the church that reflects the character and the wisdom of God in a, in a culture and in a time that chooses to live 
isolated and independent lives apart from one another, separated from one another for various and worthless reasons, that the church is to reflect a different reality, a a different passion, a different purpose, a different desire. We are to live as a family, giving ourselves up for the betterment of one another, loving ourselves in a way that is counterintuitive to the way the rest of the world lives and loves and serves. And the way that we do that reflects something unbelievably special, important, and compelling about the person and character of God. And not only are we supposed to live as some big family, but God has also given us another picture that we unpacked last week, that we are to live as ambassadors. That God actually, before the creation of, of all things, before anything that is ever came into existence, God knew you, and he purposed the span of your life, the breath that he would give you, and he purposed the extension, Paul said, of your boundaries, of your dwelling place, where you would be, that you are not here by an accident. You don't live in Richmond, in the neighborhood that you live in, at the job that you serve in. Your kids don't play on the soccer team that they play in. They don't go to the schools that they go by any sheer accident or choice on your part. God actually knew that that was going to be the place that he was going to purpose for your family to be, and he has put you there before all of eternity to be ambassadors for him, for your life to appeal to others, to be reconciled to God. That is part of what it means to be the church, and we wrestled with that last week. We wrestled with the struggles that we have with that and what that actually means and what it actually looks like, but there's an Achilles heel, for lack of a better word, an Achilles heel to actually living out these identities. There's something inside of us that, that that keeps us from actually being the family that God has called us to be, from living the ambassadorial, the representative life, the the life that proclaims reconciliation to God, the way that he has designed it and called us to live. And and that Achilles heel, as we've already said, is it's our pride. It's internal. It's not a political threat. It's not a cultural threat. It's not Hollywood. It's not New York. It's not the stock market. It's not the ACLU or whatever your enemy is, whatever you think the problem is. That's not what keeps us from being who God has called us to be. It's actually an enemy that exists from the inside. It's our pride. And there's a couple of things that our pride does that begin to keep us from living this particular life that God has called us to live. And and one of the things that our pride does is it begins to shift our focus and begins to shift our motivations and we begin to live our lives focused on what we can do and what we can achieve for ourselves. And our our lives become a pursuit of our own self-interest. And our pride begins to well up and begins to swell up and we we begin to become self-interested and self-focused and we begin to purpose ourselves to achieve what we think will bring us the most joy and most happiness of the expense of other people, of their lives, of their interests, of their interests, and of their purposes. We, we begin to think, me, me first, me first. Our hearts become hardwired to serve our own interests. And, and here's the, the crazy thing, that even when we begin to do things that, that seemingly look sacrificial, that seemingly look like good family Life for good ambassadorial representation. If you're really honest, you have to ask yourself, how many times do you actually, how many times do you actually give yourself for someone else without doing it to actually try to serve some ulterior interest that you have for yourself? I mean, here's the crazy thing. We, we, we all tend to, to look at other people and to recognize the needs that exist and and we all tend to have this desire to think, you know, I'm frustrated with the way that Tom is doing this. So maybe if I go and do this, Tom will recognize that I'm right and he's wrong and he'll begin to behave like me. And instead of modeling a particular life and challenging and encouraging a particular life lived worthy of the gospel, we model a particular life and challenge a particular life so that they can see that they're right and we're wrong and our interest of promoting ourselves is served. And we cross that line between actually living a life that encourages and and serves one another into a life that serves really just ourselves. though on the outside it it looks kind, it looks right. It looks like the way that we're supposed to live. So one of the ways that pride begins to 
to, to, to lock down our hearts and our souls and, and keep us from living the, the life that God has called us to live, to be the people that God has called us to be, is, it, is pride begins to focus our motivations and, and the desires of our hearts and our souls onto ourselves. Me first. Me first becomes the way we're thinking in all of our circumstances and situations. But the second way, the, the way that it begins to, to lock us down and, and, and keep us from living out the life that he's called us to live is it doesn't just make us me first, me focused. Here's the crazy thing. It actually, pride actually keeps us from even being aware of the needs of other people around us. I mean, not only does pride begin to work in our hearts and, and, and begin to, to constrict our souls, to begin to focus our life down upon ourselves and our own interests, but we get so consumed with our own interests. We get so consumed with our own lives and our own desires and our own wants and our own needs that we put our head down and we plow forward absolutely ignorant of the needs of others and the lives of others around us. We are absolutely unaware of the places where we're called to love, to serve, and to represent God in the lives of other people. We're not only me first, me focused, but we tend to, we tend to begin to live a life that really declares me only. Me only. Our motivation gets skewed because of pride, and our awareness of other people gets skewed because of pride. And the thing that is so discouraging in all of that to me is that the people who often get hurt the most are the ones we seem to claim, at least with our mouths, to love the most. But because we get so focused on ourselves and so consumed with ourselves, we look around and we may, we may in our heart and our mind recognize the needs of other people that exist, but we're so consumed with pursuing our own that, man, that would just take too much time to actually go and serve them or do that or you know what you know the kids have this the kids have that i gotta do this i gotta go do that here's what we're trying to do and here's where we're going we just become oblivious our pride begins to well up and and constrict our lives down to the size of our lives and our own interest and here's a here's a diagnostic for you Hey, here's a question or a circumstance I want you to think about and to see if, if this is playing out in your life in any way in particular. And I'm not going to pick on your marriage or on your kids or anything like that. I'm, I'm going to pick on church. I'm going to pick on Sunday morning. Here, here you go. What do you think our time together on Sunday morning is really for? What do you think it's really for? Is it just to be encouraged to be challenged by God's grace to be transformed? If so, one of my least favorite statements, but I'm going to use it, so don't hold it, hold it against me. The answer isn't incorrect. It's just incomplete. God has called us together as his people and has given us very particular opportunities in this place, in this moment, in this one slice of life together on Sunday morning to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to be family to one another, to be ambassadors to one another, and as we'll talk about in a few minutes this morning, to be servants of one another. But what's your mindset when you come in here? What's your mindset when you wake up in the morning? The kids are kind of fussy, you know, we, you know, we don't, marriage is good, feeling good, you know, let's just, let's just take the morning off. I don't need to go, I'm, I'm happy, I'm encouraged, I read my Bible, I don't need Sunday morning. What, what's this for? Is it for you? Is that why we gather for you? Or is that just part of it? What's your mindset about coming in here? Is it to serve to encourage, to pray, to be family. Pride. Pride is far more dangerous and far more deadly and far more discouraging to our calling as the church, to our calling as Christians, as any wild beast or any threat of death on a stake ever really could be. It's the Achilles heel of being the people that God has called us to be. But here, before we go, listen to this. I just... I feel compelled to say this. As a Christian, as someone who has been changed by the grace of God and is being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, pride does not have the last word. 
Though it is the, the great Achilles heel to being who God has called you to be, though it is that thing that you battle from the inside of your soul that begins to work its way out in the way you live, pride does not have the last word. Jesus has the last word. And as a Christian, his spirit is living in you, transforming you into the likeness of Christ. It is working in you, changing you, shaping you, transforming you. As you work with the spirit of God to work that out in your life, you are actually choking out the power of pride in your life. And what will be left in its place is a life that, that, that reflects and that lives out a humble servanthood as the life of christ works itself in you the life of christ will work itself out of you amongst one another and the expectation is that will look like a a humble sense of service a servanthood we were called by god as the church to live in this place in this time as a family as ambassadors and as servants You have been saved by God to serve. Saved by God to serve. Not just him, but one another. This is is the the hardest thing to swallow. This is the hardest lesson to learn. This is the the characteristic, this is the identity, this is the calling that really undergirds the others. This is the one that really sits over the rest because without understanding what it means to serve, without understanding what it means to be a servant of God because of the gospel, we will have a hard time effectively being a family. We will have a hard time laying down our rights and our desires for the betterment of one another as a family. We'll have a hard time serving not our own interests, but the interests of the one who came and died on our behalf as ambassadors, not pursuing our own agenda, but pursuing the agenda of the one who came and gave himself up for us. When we don't understand this calling to live as servants, we'll have a hard time being family and ambassadors, but this is the hardest one to swallow. This is the hardest one to swallow. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a walk with Jesus and his disciples, and we're going to see that you have great company in the disciples, great encouragement in the disciples. It was hard for them to learn this lesson. It was hard for them to understand what it meant to live a life worthy of the calling of God in a way that serves sacrificially the life of not only Christ, but of one another. So we're going to walk with Jesus as he tries to teach this and encourage his disciples in this. And and one, I want you to be encouraged. One, I want you to be challenged. And we're just going to let the picture and the teaching of Christ speak for us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 9. Is it going to come up on the screen? Did you do it? Yeah. There's going to be a lot of text on the screen. We're going to go through... Three or, three or four narratives from the Gospels. So if you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to use them, uh, not to try to be too dependent on the screen. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the tables out here that are free. They're yours. Take it, keep it, use it. Um, our gift to you. But if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. By God's grace, I'm going to pray, and we're just going to believe that God is going to not only cultivate this identity of servanthood in us and begin that process, but expose the, the depths of pride in us that need to be choked out and weeded out. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that define who we are, that tell us who we are, where we're from, where we're going, and to what end you have created us. Thank you for the scriptures that provide encouragement, that provide correction, that expose the depths of our sin in our hearts and expose the depths of your grace and your mercy in the gospel. We ask that in the next minutes that we have together, you, by your spirit, make the scriptures alive to our hearts. Change us. Where we need to be challenged, challenge us. Where we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Where we need to find joy, bring joy. Where we need to be ignited and find passion, bring passion. We ask that, Lord, for your name's sake, Amen. Mark 9, we're going to start in verse 33. Jesus is, is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time with his disciples. He has, he has been in his earthly ministry, traveling, teaching, 
uh, performing miracles, and, and he has begin, begun alluding to his disciples the purpose for which he's going to Jerusalem for to face the cross. But he hasn't actually said it outright, super clearly, so that they'll fully understand. But they're on their final journey now back to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to be handed over to the guard, and he will give himself up as a ransom for our lives. And so he's walking with his disciples. And <clears throat> verse 33, it says, They came to Capernaum. <clears throat> And when he was in the house, he asked them, he's talking about his disciples, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he, talking about Jesus, sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. This is one of one of three times we're going to see Jesus over the short period of this trip to Jerusalem begin to teach this lesson to his disciples, and they're going to have a hard time getting it, just like we do. They are going to have a hard time getting it. But what I want you to notice in this one little example is what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't rebuke them. He didn't criticize them. He didn't mock them. He didn't make fun of them for their desire. He took their desire and redirected it. He took their desire that was focused inwardly on their interest, on their purposes and on their agenda, and he redirected it outward. He didn't rebuke their desire. He just shifted its scope. He just changed its direction. What was focusing on themselves, he focused outward. But they didn't get it. And, and as I was reading this this week, I thought to myself, if this isn't a picture of the church in our country today, Walking along the road with Jesus, got Jesus right there with us, but totally consumed about who's the best, who's going to be the greatest. Got Jesus right here with us, performing, teaching, caught up in the fact that we're not the ones doing it, he's actually doing it. To such a degree, we've become weary with our own pride that we're arguing who, who's the greatest. Which one of us is going to be the best? Who's going to have the best music, the biggest building, the most impact, the largest internet deal, the whatever it is that we tend to judge ourselves by? We have forgotten the one that we're with and the one that we're serving, and we've begun arguing amongst ourselves which one of us is actually going to be great. We're, we're, we're not much different than these guys. Churches are just people made up of guys like this. And so it makes it's no wonder that this is the way that we begin to think and begin to live. So they don't get it. It's not registering yet what he's saying. You just turn a page over maybe in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. We're going to see him try to teach this lesson again. This is going to be the second time he's trying to teach it. They're not going to get it the first time, and you'll see they're not going to get it the second time, but he's going to go a little bit deeper with this lesson. Mark 10, going to verse 32. It says, and they were on the road again, traveling to Jerusalem is where they're going, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus has just taken his testimony of what's about to happen, and he's taken it another step. He's pulled back the layer on them just a little bit about what's going to actually happen but look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came up to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, what, what have they seen? I mean, they've been with Jesus this whole time. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've seen the wonders. The audacity of these two, it's unbelievable. They have a nickname in Scripture called the Sons of Thunder. And you only get a nickname called the Sons of Thunder when you have a certain brazenness about yourself. And these guys have recognized a truth about what Jesus is saying. He's on his way to where he's going. So they're coming to the end, the climax of what he's been talking about. And they recognize, and I give them all the credit in the world, and so does Jesus. Something has got to be done. He's about to go where he's been saying he's going to go. Now listen to me, teacher. I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. And, and here's one of the things I love about the Bible. That's why I, I hope you read your Bibles. Matthew records this story too. 
And I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the best analogy to their writing that I've ever really heard that made sense to me is they're like four different broadcast news networks reporting the same story. They all kind of pick up on different pieces of the same story and report them, and you kind of get this brilliant picture of what's going on. And in Matthew 20, Matthew records this story, and he opens it up a little bit. It says, while Jesus is walking along the road on the way to Jerusalem, James and John were brought to Jesus by their mom. The sons of thunder. Their mom comes to Jesus. Says, here's what I want you to do for me. If I ask you to do something, I want you to do it for me. And Jesus, he, he, I love this. Their mama comes to do this for them. Sons of thunder. Mark leaves that out, but I think it's fun. Jesus looks at him, especially in Matthew, and he says, what y'all want? Wasn't their mom's idea that they had contrived to get her boys at the head of Jesus' rule. It, it was something that was in the hearts of John, and it was something in the hearts of James. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. Here's the thing. They were still living under this idea that Jesus was this great political messianic ruler who was going to come, like, the, like David had promised, and the way they had interpreted the early messianic promises of, of Scripture, that this king, like David, was going to come and deliver them from slavery, deliver them from oppression, and they would rule and reign as God's people in God's place and God's land, again, as the people of Israel. And they were expecting this great leader who was going to come and do this, and they had put that hope in Jesus. And though he had spurned that calling multiple times in his teaching, this is what they were still hoping. So here, James and John, the sons of thunder, the brazen boys of Zebedee, have recognized that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to enter into his glory. That means he's going to take over the land. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the one with all the power and all the rule. Now, here's what I want you to do for me. When we get there, I want you to put me and put us at your right and your left. I want to make sure that our interests are taken care of. I want to make sure that the prominence and the power and the authority that comes to those who sit at the right hand and the left hand of the king are ours. This is what I want you to do for me. They still haven't gotten the lesson. They still haven't quite figured it out. Their interests are still hardwired towards themselves, not only for them first, but to the exclusion of everyone else. Because you'll see in a minute, the rest of the disciples were thinking the same thing. Because they get thoroughly indignant with James and John, but the sons of thunder. I mean, they had the chutzpah to do it. I mean, the rest of the disciples were too meek and too coy, and they were thinking it. But these guys actually had the audacity to come and do it. They were still self-interested, self-focused, and unaware of everyone else around them. Jesus had become a means to their end. Boy, if that's not another layer back on the church today, building theologies and, and doctrines to how Jesus can become a means to our end, that we can live the life we've always wanted right here, right now because of Jesus. Teacher, I want you to do for me whatever I ask of you. Deal? Right? Boy, that's not the church. Listen to Jesus, verse 38. He said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now he's talking about his death, his impending suffering and crucifixion. And they said to him, we're, we're able. Of course, we, we want the position, we want the role, we want the authority, we want the power. We're not going to say no. Sure, your cup, your baptism, you know, whatever. You know, I'll drink blood, dunk me in the water, I don't, I don't care, whatever. They don't, they don't know what he's talking about yet. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism of which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll get it. They'll get it. The self-serving ideas that we can get God to do whatever we want for him without any cost to ourselves. Don't read their Bibles. You will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why? They wanted the same thing. They had the same thoughts. They were maneuvering in their own way. These guys just had the audacity to go and ask for it and to go and do it. And so they were upset and they were frustrated. And Jesus called them to himself. Here we go again. 
And he said, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. They're saying, absolutely, that's what I want. I want power, I want authority, right hand, left hand. I want to tell people what to do and when to do it. When I say jump, they say how high. That's what I want. Jesus, me at your right, my brother at your left, let's do this thing. And he says, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now he has peeled it back one more layer. Now he has not only told his disciples what is going to actually happen, what he is going to in Jerusalem, he's now telling them how it's going to actually come to pass. You see, we cannot free ourselves from our own preoccupation with ourselves and our own interests. We have to be rescued. This is what Jesus is beginning to press home to his disciples. This is what he's beginning to press home to us. Jesus took the self-interested pride, the self-serving pride, the me first and me only attitude of his disciples and he took that and made it the stage to pull the curtain back a little bit to talk more about what God's plan was to rescue them from their greatest danger, which wasn't Rome but themselves, but their pride. Jesus began to talk about what it was going to be like for him to give himself up as a ransom. The ultimate act of servanthood and sacrifice and service for all of mankind. In just days, in just days from this conversation, he who knew no sin, the Bible said, would become or be made sin. He would offer himself up to be sacrificed on a horrific bloody and painful cross for those who would put their trust and hope and faith in him to be delivered from their pride, to be delivered from their self-centeredness, to be delivered from their self-obsession, to be delivered from their me-first and me-only attitudes. And as people would see him exalted, God would say, and put their trust in him, he would become the ransom for many paying the price to actually free us from ourselves, to free us from the slavery that we find ourselves in to our own pride, to our own self-sufficiency, to the pursuit and the passion to fulfill ourselves by something that's no greater than ourselves. He would set us free for that. But they don't get it. They don't get it. He's getting more clear and more clear and more clear, but they're still slow to understand. They're still not able to get their minds and to get their hearts around it. And so thousands of years later, in 2009, I, I don't think we've, we've changed much. There's still much that we have in common with these guys. We're still slow to learn these lessons. We're still slow to understand what he's talking about. So now in the third lesson, of what it means to be a servant and what Jesus is teaching them, he's gonna actually give them a demonstration. He's gonna teach them and he's gonna show them. So if you got your Bibles, now flip over to John. Go to John chapter 13. As you're flipping there, I'll tell you what's happened and how we've gotten there. They get back on the road and they continue to make their way to Jerusalem. This is just days from these two lessons. I mean, Jesus, we're coming to the end of his ministry and his time with these guys, and he's pressing something home. You see it recorded in the scriptures three times in these last days with his disciples. There is a lesson amongst others that he is pressing home with these guys. What does it mean to actually live life in a way that reflects his glory, his purposes, his plan? There's something they're not getting. They're on their way to Jerusalem, and they've, they've come to the gates, and it's there in Jerusalem where they were going. The Passover was being celebrated. So they were coming to Jerusalem like the rest of the pilgrims to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus tells his disciples to go into the city that there would be a man waiting for them who had a place for them where they could celebrate Passover together. None of them lived there. They didn't have a house. It wasn't their out-of-town residence. They had no place to go to celebrate. But Jesus told them that somebody was expecting them and was going to be waiting for them. And they told him exactly who it was to go find him. Then he would give them a room and they could prepare it so they could celebrate the Passover. And so the disciples go along their way to prepare a place to celebrate the Passover of Jesus in Jerusalem. Now here's something that you've got to understand a little bit about 
this time, uh, if you're going to catch this story, when people would come into one another's homes, there was always a, a basin of water at the door and some towels and a Gentile slave standing with that water and those towels to clean the feet and the legs of the people who were coming to dinner. I mean, just like you make your bathroom available to guests that you have over for dinner to wash their hands and clean up before you eat, these guys had somebody at the door with water and towels ready to clean their feet. Because remember, first century, maybe in some of the larger cities and in certain areas, cobblestone. Maybe. But there were more animals on that cobblestone than there were humans. The rest of the land, the rest of the area, dirt roads. Dusty dirt roads. If it had rained, they were muddy. These guys wore sandals. I didn't wear my sandals. I always have sandals. Of all the days not to wear sandals, I could have shown you a demonstration of how dirty feet get when you wear sandals. But imagine these guys walking, traveling, dust collecting in their toes and in their feet and, and, and muck and grime. They, they come into a place, there's always somebody there to clean their feet before they would eat because you know what? They didn't sit at a big table in chairs. They actually reclined at a low table, a table about this high. And they would recline by leaning on one elbow with their feet spread out to the side, almost wrapping around each other. So they were very close to each other, in very close proximity to each other. So they wanted their feet and their, their legs all cleaned up. It's kind of nasty to get up close to each other like that, all dirty. So they would have somebody there to clean them up. But here's the thing. This wasn't anybody's home. This wasn't one of the disciples' home, was it? It was just a rented room. What that meant is the room would be prepared. There'd be water and a towel, but there would be no Gentile servant there to clean anybody's feet. There would be no servant waiting at the door to clean you so that you could sit down and have dinner. And here's what happens. All these disciples begin to gather in this room to celebrate Passover with Jesus. And one by one, they begin to come into the room. There's the bowl of water. There are the towels. There are their stinky feet. One by one, they come into the room and they make their way over to the table. No doubt, probably trying to get as far away from that water and that towel as possible before their consciences begin to condemn them. One by one, they begin to come in, and they begin to take their place at the table. What's interesting to notice about this story when we begin to read it in John is not just what Jesus does or not just what happens, but what doesn't happen. What doesn't happen is that what you begin to see is that the lesson hasn't sunk in yet. The lesson that he has been teaching these last few days, if you want to be great, you want me to put you at my right hand and my left hand. You want power. You want authority. Here's how it comes. He who wants to be great has to become the servant of all. That's how you'll get it. I'll give it to you, but here's how it happens. They come into the room. There's nobody there. Nobody there. Who assumes that position? Who assumes that position? Who actually takes it upon themselves to not consider themselves greater than everybody else, but to consider themselves as less, the servant of all? None of them. They still haven't caught it. Stinky, nasty, dirty feet and all. They want authority. They want power. But they don't quite get the way Jesus is talking about it. The very thing that God is calling them to be, the very thing he's calling them to do, they still don't. Get it, especially when it comes to feet. That's just not what they're going to do. Cleanliness was a huge thing for the Jewish people. Enormous thing, especially when it came to meals. And a Gentile, not even a Jew, was the one who would clean their feet. I am not going to do that to him. They've been arguing about who's the greatest. I'm not going to clean his toes, clean his feet. I, I don't know who said it. it it's, I think it's on your bulletin. But he said, it's easier to be a martyr for Jesus. It's easier to hear the story about Polycarp and to think, you know what? Push come to shove, put me on the stake, light me on fire, I'll die. Easier to be a martyr for Jesus than to die to yourself daily. But every single day, you face a firing squad. I mean, you face a herd of hungry, starving lions in your own soul and in your own pride. Every single day is a process of dying to yourself, not just in the great moments, not just in the big moments, but in the places that nobody will ever notice, nobody will ever remember. And what you see about Jesus is that he lives this passion, he lives this service, he lives this identity, he lives this reality, not just on the cross, but in the quiet places and everyday places 
of everyday life. And that's what you begin to see in John 13. No doubt they've come in probably jockeying for position. Who's going to sit where? Who's not going to clean the feet? Who's the greatest? Here's the great thing. I love the Bible again. I got time. We're going to read John 13. But again, just like you read Matthew and he gives you a peek on that other story, you got to weigh the lo- way Luke records this. you got to love the way Luke records this. When Luke records this last meal with the disciples, he doesn't include the story that we're going to read in just a second about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. You all know John 13. You've already looked at your Bible. You know what we're going to read. Luke doesn't tell you that story. Luke tells this story. They come in. They're going to have Passover. And you get the great introduction of what we talk about as the Lord's Supper. The great words of institution. Jesus teaching them about his body broken on their behalf. His blood poured out. That is, they come together to do this every time they come together in remembrance of him. This is what you see in Luke's record of this dinner. And then the next thing, what does it say? You read it, what does it say? In Luke, I think it's in Luke 22. No, don't worry about it. The next thing after the story says this, a squabble broke out amongst them. <laughs> Jesus said, you're going to take this bread and this is my body broken for you. Here's my blood poured out on your behalf. But I know one, one here, who's going to betray me. And as they begin to squabble about, wait a minute, is that me? Is that you? I don't know. No, I'm the best. I'm the greatest. The next thing you know, at the institution of the final Passover with Jesus and his disciples before he turns himself over to be crucified on their behalf, a fight breaks out again. Who's the greatest? Who's the best? And that's where John's story begins to intersect with Luke's story of this last meal. And you get John 13. Look at verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world, the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He's delivered the food. He's explained to them his body broken, his blood poured out. He's told them that he's, every time they do this again, to do it as they remember him poured out for them and they've busted out into a fight about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? In that, Jesus rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Can you imagine? I mean, just... Please read your Bibles like this. Can you imagine the scene? The stunned silence. I mean, the shock that has got to be going on in the hearts and in the minds and on the faces of these guys. Here they are with the master. He's just explained what's going to happen to him again. And this time he's done it with tangible representations. He's told them what's going to happen. And again, they've busted out into this chorus of who's going to be the best. And he gets up, strips himself down to a loincloth, ties the towel around himself, and begins to wash their feet, the thing that none of them would do. They chose to eat with dirty, stinky feet wrapped up on each other rather than become a servant to all people the way that he's been teaching them. And so he stands up, and he goes, and he begins to wash their feet. There is now no room for the argument to continue. You've got to imagine that the argument that had broken out is now done. Nobody is talking. Nobody is arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Here is the one who created all things by the word of his power. Here is the one who at that very moment is actually holding the molecular properties of the water together by the power of his word. And he stoops down. The one who has given them the breath that they breathe, that they're expending upon their own desire to be great, has now washed their feet. There is no room for pretense. All argument of greatness, all argument of power, all argument of authority is gone. Jesus has now served them. Short of the cross and the greatest demonstration of humility and sacrifice and service, the one who had the right to wear the priestly, kingly robes of eternity took them all off 
and wrapped himself in a towel, cleaned their feet, even the feet of Judas. Judas, the one who in just a few moments would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and be the domino that knocked down the dominoes that God had orchestrated for all of eternity that would send his son to the cross to be the ransom for our sin, whose body would be broken, whose blood would be poured out. But here's what I love. Here's something I love. Notice what John said about Jesus in these first few verses. Notice what Jesus knew when he did this. Verse 1, Jesus knew that he loved his disciples. He knew that he loved with an unbelievably, unbelievably deep and sincere desire that word is getting after. He loved his disciples despite their hard-headedness, despite their inability to get it, despite their continued fight for who was going to be great. He loved them, and he loved them, John said, all the way to the end. Jesus loved his men. Jesus also knew who he was. Jesus also knew who he was. John said, knowing that God, had, the Father, had given him all power and that he had given him all authority. Jesus had a perfect understanding of who he was. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. John said, knowing that he would return to the Father. Jesus had this unbelievably rock-solid sense of self and sense of identity in relationship to the Father. And I have to wonder when I read this, what would it actually be like for his people, for his church, on the backside of his sacrifice on the cross, to actually believe what the scriptures say about who we are, where we're going, where we've been saved from. What if we actually believed what the scriptures said about our lives being rescued from alienation and separation and judgment from God by the sacrifice of Christ and that by putting our hope and trust in his substitute in our place, we are now reconciled to God, called children of God and sent to live as ambassadors and family and servants of God for others. If we actually believed who we are as the Bible describes us, where we're going and what we've been saved from, what would it actually look like for us? What compelled him towards this service? He knew who he was. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. So what would it actually look like for us if we began to actually believe? If we actually began to bank our hope and our trust in how the scriptures describe who we are? I don't have an answer for you. So the one who is the creator of all things before all things in whom all things hold together, is now cleaning the feet of those whose very life and breath he is holding in the palm of his hand. Here's Peter's response, verse 6. I love Peter. You've got to find consolation in Peter. Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. I don't know if he'd already wiped Judas' feet. I don't know. Judas might just be bawling in the corner, no one was about to do I don't know. I wish the Bible told us. One day I really, you know, I hope when we get to heaven we get to see everything. I mean, I don't know if it's going to work that way, but I hope that we actually get to see everything and watch it. I would love to know if he'd already cleaned Judas' feet when he got to Peter. If Peter's response did anything, I, I don't know, I don't know, but I want to see it one day. He came to Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you, don't, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I love Peter. You shall never wash my feet. I will never deny you. You will never be delivered over to death. Peter's got passion. Peter lived in my house. Everybody in my house is like this. Nothing is done without passion. No, you'll never. No, I won't. No, we won't. Yeah, we like Peter. The main issue with Peter here is not the humility that Peter is not displaying. We tend to think about this and we focus on Peter's refusal to allow Jesus to clean his feet. But the purpose of what is being said here is not the humility that Peter is not showing, but the humility that is being shown by Christ. The sacrifice and the service that's on display because of Christ. In all of this, 
in all of his service and in this simple action, all of the pretense, all of the desire, all of the self-interest has got to be wiped away. All of the posturing is seen for everything that it really is. And all of his teaching along the way about what it means to, to be a servant of all, to really have the power, the authority, and the effect that they want, all the teaching comes down to this and it exposes the depth and the darkness of the pride that exists in their hearts and that exists in all of ours. As Jesus stoops down to clean their feet and stoops down to clean Peter's feet, the posturing is gone. There is no room. There's no room for self-exaltation. There's no room. Because the King of Kings has now stooped down to clean their feet. I get Peter. I get him. I don't want to let him do that. I don't want to let him clean the filthiness, the darkness, the, the grotesque things that have accumulated in my soul. I get Peter. But we can't do it. We can't clean ourselves. And this is what Jesus is getting to. This is how Jesus answered Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus just took a physical thing and he went straight to the heart and straight spiritual. This is what Jesus always does. If we do not allow ourselves to be washed clean by Christ, by the humbling, sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross, proclaimed in the gospel, if we do not allow him to cleanse us, to wash us, to clean us, to make us new, we can have no part of him because we cannot clean ourselves. We cannot make ourselves clean, but we desperately want to be like Peter and say, no, don't wash my feet. You can't wash my feet. Let me pick this off and clean that out and get rid of this and do that. Then you can come and then we'll be okay. But Jesus said, look, if I don't wash you, if you don't let me wash you, if you don't let me in my sacrifice and in my service and in my humiliation wash you, you can have no part of me. You can have no part of a new life. You can have no part of the reconciliation. You can have no part of the adoption of being called my son. You can have no part of the regeneration of a new heart and a new soul and a new life with new desires. You can have no part of the reconciliation between God and you and you and others. You can have no part of the sanctification and the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, conforming you into the image of Christ. You can have no part in the future restoration of all things and the glorification of all things in the new heavens and a new earth. You can have no part if you don't let me wash you. You don't let me wash you. And I love Peter's response. Again, a man of passion. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Bathe me. Jonathan Edwards said that this is a gospel bath. Day in and day out, we are to remind ourselves of the bath that we have taken in the waters of the towel with Christ. The servanthood of the towel, Edwards called it, as we remind ourselves of the bath that we must take. God, cleanse me. Don't just stop at my feet. Go to my head, go to my hands, go to my back, go to my knees. Whatever is dirty, clean me. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. I don't know if he's clean Judas yet. Uh, again, I want to see it one day. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. What he's getting after is this reality that once you have been clean, once you have been made new, once God has restored you and reconciled you to himself, you don't need to go to that any longer. He has cleaned you once and for all. And now life comes in a continual act of repentance and confession and receiving the forgiveness and the cleansing of God again for the sins that you have committed today, the sins you will commit tomorrow, the sins you will commit the next day, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place and he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? Of course they don't. They're going to begin to get it though. Do you understand what I've done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here we go, lesson number three. He's taught him twice, he's embodied it once, and he's going to teach him a third time. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. The battle of the Christian life, the battle of the day-in, day-out life with Christ as his people, individually and as his people corporately, is the battle to understand and hope and trust in what he has done for us. That question hangs in the balance every single day. Do you understand what I have done to you? And the battle that we fight every single day is to say, yes, I do. And what difference does that make in how I live my life now? When we understand what he has done to us, when we understand what he has done for us, when we understand who Jesus is and what his sacrifice cost him on our behalf, we will live differently because we begin to see ourselves in a different light. Posturing, pretense, desire, they get directed in the right way. Wrong? No. Misdirected? Yes. Yes. He never rebuked them for the desire. He just corrected the focus of the passion. When we understand what he has done to us, we will begin to live differently. Our serving matters. Being a servant matters. We were saved by God, cleansed by God to serve not only God but one another. And when we do, the reason our service matters, the reason our sacrifice matters, the reason living as servants matters is because when we do, we reveal and we reflect the glory and the character of the one who has served us and saved us. Being a servant matters because it reveals and reflects Christ. Being a servant matters. Living as servants matters because when we do, we reflect his love and his mercy that sacrificed himself for us. And our service does not point towards us, but towards the one who has empowered us to live that way. Being a servant matters. It matters. It's important. The life of Christ in us should produce a humble servanthood amongst us. Problem? I'm selfish. And so are you. I'm selfish and, and so are you. But our selfishness and our pride does not have the last word. Our selfishness and our pride does not have the last word. Christ does. Let me close it this way. Writing to the church in Philippi. Talked about him a little bit earlier. The Apostle Paul is encouraging them in the face of difficulty, in the face of persecution, in the face of struggle and suffering, similar maybe to some that you face, definitely similar to the struggles that you face in your heart, in your own pride. And he is encouraging them to live a life worthy of this gospel, to live a life worthy of this sacrifice of Christ. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm going to ask you. He asked this church in a rhetorical way, and I'm going to ask you. Redemption Hill, is there... Is there any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any encouragement in Christ? I love that word, encouragement. It's not happy, nice things. Encouragement is the deposit of courage into something, into someone. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Any comfort from love? Any participation in the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy in your life because of Christ and the answer that he would expect and the answer that I would expect and the answer that you have to wrestle with in your own heart and is your own soul is yes. Yes. We who were deserving of condemnation because of our sin have received encouragement from Christ and his sacrifice. Yes, there is encouragement. We who were deserving of, of wrath and, and judgment have now received comfort because of Christ. Comfort in his sacrifice. Is there any comfort from love? Yes. Is there any participation in the spirit? Yes. Those who because of our sin only deserved exclusion and separation from God for all of eternity have now received reconciliation and adoption as family. Is there any participation in the spirit? Yes. Is there any affection? Any sympathy? 
for those who were deserving only of judgment. For those who were deserving in their sins of the judgment of God for all of eternity, for our disregard for him and our self-pursuit of our own interest. Yeah. Yeah. There's affection and sympathy. If there's encouragement, if there's comfort, if there's participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy because of Christ, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry and conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Me first. Do nothing with that attitude. Do nothing with a me first centered heart pursuing your own interests out of selfish ambition, rivalry, or conceit. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to also the interests of others. Not just pursuing your own me first, but excluding others by focusing only on yourself. Don't just pay attention to your own needs. But look to serve and sacrifice and be a servant to all. This is the call in the life of the gospel. And then let me read you this. How is it even possible? This is the best, probably one of the best sections of scripture in the Bible. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here you go. How do you do this? Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He just took wiping their feet with a towel to a whole new level. And being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The power and the position, the things that we seek, the interests we seek, they're his. And Paul said, we are now hidden 